Okay, so we're going to want to know a lot more about that. But let's, oh, Carol? Can you just give us one quick, like, what are the five pillars so that those of us who weren't here, and I imagine some of us who were, could, could use just a quick refresher? <laughs> Sure. Um, there, I don't know. Did everybody get is one of written? these? Yeah, oh, it is. Sorry. It's, so it said spiritual practices. It's on the bottom of the first page. Oh, okay. Sorry. Um, no, no, it's fine. It's, so it's the, basically the fasting throughout the year. We spoke about the fasting during Ramadan last time, last week. Um, for Sufis, there's actually a whole calendar very similar to the Catholic calendar where there's all different holy days. And we put that later in the syllabus. Um, where there's fasting is required. Um, for every, for most, not every, but for most Sufis, there's uh, the first day of the month and the tenth day of the month for, for spiritual reasons um, are very sacred. And so a lot of Sufis fast on the first day of the month and the tenth day of the month. I mean, it's, it's constant. So like I said before, like the five pillars is really like a, a jumping off point for, for Sufis, practicing Sufis, because it's just the beginning. It's the foundation of Islam. Yeah. That's why they're called the five pillars. Uh, Amy? Yeah, could, could you explain, um, and, and maybe just you know, one or two examples, why does Sufism challenge the Islamic fundamentals? Uh, let me, it doesn't challenge them. It uses them as a foundation. Right, but then why would they be Because rejected? we're going to get to that, but I'd rather wait on okay. what why Sufism has been suppressed in the Islamic world right. so that we can first understand what Sufism is about. Okay? okay? okay. So hold on to those questions. Um, and what, here's this, this is our syllabus. This is the, this is what we handed out before. Right here, I'll take two also. Uh, we may be running out. Let me just see. Here I got this. I have a, I have a syllabus. And I got one too. Okay, good. And here's a glossary. And this is the handout from last week. Here, I've got partial. Yeah, Joni, look on with somebody else. Take this, but you'll have to look on with someone else. This is an extra. Yeah, okay, thank you. Friends, do your best. The class is scheduled to start at 1.45, so do your best, okay? Because, uh, you know, courtesy. Um, thank you. So, Michael, you want to add yeah. something? I, I, well, I, it's kind of an addition and a question. So, in, you, you mentioned in Judaism that there's this kind of like border to mysticism, but there's also a big movement today within Judaism that's saying that we are Dor which means that we are the generation of redemption. And so, therefore, we are we're able to go straight to the Kabbalah without this idea of practicing the basics first. That there's, so, there's a similar so my question was, is, 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 yeah. is there the same thing in, in Islam? Is yes. there, first of all, is there a redemption of the Messiah or something like Whoa, that? Whoa, yes. we didn't even put Messiah down on this list. Oh, yeah, there is, actually. That's a fascinating topic. That should be on Okay, the list. we'll yeah. put Messiah down. Yeah, there is. Uh, there's a Muslim Messiah. He's because called you talk about modernity, so there are some elements of religion that accept it and some that reject it. That's right. So we are a vanguard of modernity. Right, which is to we are, which is to say we're all sitting together, talking with each other, uh, and willing to pick and choose. Right, that is the the both that is both the right and kind of the purview of being a modern person in the modern world is the idea that is nothing sacred, 
No, nothing sacred <laughs> on some level. On some level, everything's open to our questioning and analysis. And that's both liberating and confounding, right? And you can see if that's what someone is told about the world, that somebody might just be a lot happier saying, no thanks, I'd rather put up my walls and stay within a system that I don't have to think about quite so, um, you know, and that we are all in the midst of, a, of, of incredible upheaval, culturally, interconnectedly, and uh, so this is one response. It's the response that we're all excited about and interested in, which is how do we keep the doors open while we maintain some sense of integrity with our own traditions. And one of the times of great flowering of Sufi thought was in the 12th century in Andalusia in Spain, which, which many gatherings like this happened at that point. Um, and then there was a backlash. Uh, so, you know, that's the way it goes, right? It's like the pendulum swings from one There was an incredible flowering in Andalusia, uh, and it's known in Jewish texts as the Golden Age. Uh, for the Jewish community in Spain, because there was discourse both with the Christian world and with the Islamic world, especially with the Islamic world. Uh, and it's, we'll, we'll be referencing it. Yeah, I'll, I'll bring in some, I know I said this last week too, but I'll bring in some texts from Ibn al-Arabi, who was one of the great luminaries. Oh, hold on one second. Gail, did you want to add something? Yeah, it may just be because I wasn't here last week, but it sounds like you're doing fundamentalist Islam and Sufi. We are not. Okay, there must be something. We are not. I'm trying to just steer us back. So it's all right. Wait. Okay? Just wait. We're going to get there. So my first question for Rabia and Karuna is, what does the word Sufi mean? That's a good one. Well, there are several um, theories. Um, one is that it, it is part of the Arabic root for purity, soft. Um, and one, it's also um, the word for wool. And wool? Wool. And people wore, uh, Sufis were known for wearing simple woolen garments. So that was one um, theory. My favorite, although I'm not saying it's the accurate one, is there are there is a tradition um, amongst the companions of the Prophet that there were a group of people who sat outside of the mosque. They were they were very poor and they did spiritual practice all day long and they were supported by the community. They were called the people of the bench and the oh. word for bench in Arabic is also a word like saf. Saf saf. Yes, so um, those are all theories that this was the earliest community of people who did the kind of deep spiritual practice that, um, and from there, it, it, it's always been a thread in Islam. There's always been this undercurrent, this, I, I love the way Rabia put it, this, um, uh, where is it, the, like an underground river surfacing at different moments in history to refresh and renew the wellsprings of knowledge. Beautiful. There, were, there was always this undercurrent of practice. Some, some say even before um, the prophet. So I want to keep our history hats on for a minute. Where do we, from an historical standpoint, first learn about Sufism? What century? When does it surface as something that gets called Sufism? Um, I think it, um, there were many Sufi saints right, right from the time of the prophet. There were great Sufis. Yeah, so, um, but 
I, when did the word Sufi come into usage? I'm not exactly sure, like exactly when people started calling them Sufis, but there was um, Uwais al-Qurani, who was a famous saint um, at the time of the Prophet. I mean, there were definitely saintly people that were considered like very high beings um, that are spoken about in the oral traditions. So, um, so you could say that Sufism is may, may come, maybe co, co-originating with Islam as a the underground river of spiritual seeking in Islam. Sure, yeah, for sure, yeah, and um, the the um, chain of transmitters of Sufism, which I'm sure Rabia will get into, but it said it starts with the um, well, it starts with Allah, goes through the prophet, uh, I mean the archangel Gabriel, Jabriel in the Islamic tradition, and then goes from Muhammad to, some people say, Fatima, <laughs> and then Ali, it's his tell everyone who, Fatima was Muhammad's Fat, daughter. Right. Um, and then gets, gets passed down. So there was never a time in the Islamic tradition when there, was, there were not, at least according to the Sufis, there were not Sufis. It's a, it's a transmission that gets handed down from person to person throughout history. And to this, yes. this day. And, and um, actually all of the Sufi orders, and there's thousands of them throughout the world, thousands and thousands. They're really like, I mean, I, if anybody tried to sit down and make a compendium of all the different Sufi lineages, it would be like really a vast book. But um, a friend of mine who's a scholar um, in Nashville made a book, uh, wrote a book basically about the founders of the different Sufi orders. and. Like, you know, you were saying that they all trace back to the Prophet Muhammad and Ali, um, except the and Fatima. They, 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 um, they do Abu Bakr. Abu Bakr, right, yes, right. Who is? The uh, first caliph. The first caliph, okay, yeah. but back to the origins. Yeah. Right, mm-hmm. so, so basically if you, if you take initiation to a Sufi order, which is basically what you do if you want to engage in this um, path, this pathless path, as we like to say, because really there's no, uh, you know, guidebook. Um, but you choose a Sufi order, and then you'll be told that the silsila of your order, it's called a silsila. Silsila means um, a chain of light, basically. Hebrew word? Shalshelet. Shalshelet, yeah. Shalshelet, wow. Shalshelet HaKabbalah is uh, used in Kabbalah as the chain of transmission okay. for Kabbalah. So One of the reasons there are going to be so many comparisons is Kabbalah flowers within the Islamic world. Uh, and uh, the com- there are going to be so many connections. Do you know what, what centuries? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, well, here, t- speak a little more, and yeah, then I'll, yeah, I'll yeah. do a little thing. No, it'll be interesting to compare that. So, so basically, when you enter an order, you're given the silsil of the order, and then you can see all the saints that are in your order. Um, and it really does pass. Like, if, for instance, in my order, the Grand Sheikh, who is living in Istanbul, and he's the head of our order right now, he's the 21st Grand Sheikh of our order. And I have a list at home of all the names and the birth dates and passing dates of every Sheikh going back through the centuries, back to the 17th century, which is when my uh, lineage was founded. And, and that's pretty actually late uh, in, for Sufism. The Sufi brotherhoods were formed mostly in the 13th century. Um, the 11th through 13th centuries. Um, 13th century was like the flowering of Sufi brotherhoods where monasteries were set up and um, there was really like a, a codif- 
a codification of these practices that have been around that had been around for centuries. But in the 13th century, um, it was there was really a um, a push to really codify that and start to keep track and really like. And there's also weirds, um, which are prayers. I actually brought the weird of our order. This is a daily prayer that we do. It's called the morning weird. Um, and it's, it's, uh, this is the seal of our order. And that's um, the seal of our peer, Hazrat Dipir Nardin Jaraidi. And he lived in 1600, late 1600s in Istanbul. So, and this he actually wrote. He didn't write it because it's all compiled at Quran and, and Hadith and prayers. But he compiled it, let's say. And he used to practice it himself every morning. So we, we practice it following in his uh, footsteps. So really, this is like a, a 17th century document. That wow. And it says on the frontispiece, falling in love with Allah. Oh. <laughs> so again, those of us familiar with devotional practices in different traditions know that it's all about falling in love with God. That's, uh, th this can cross. Uh, Helen? When you say your order, can we think of Let's say a Dominican order or a Franciscan order. Oh, that's yes. a good question. Yes, yes, and we have we have branches all over the world. So, so that would be an analogy. Uh, <laughs> and you can join an order just like you can join a Catholic order. Okay. Uh, and when uh, when Matthew's here, unless uh, uh, anybody else, Susan. The only, the only uh, distinction I'll make really quick is that Sufis. At one point, there were monasteries where Sufis would retreat. It's called Halvet. And actually, our, our name is Halveti Jirahi. We're known as the retreating, uh, the retreating Sufis. We still retreat. Um, but most Sufis do not retreat from the world. It's not, it was something that you were supposed, to, as a Sufi, you're supposed to have one foot in this world and one foot in the other world, the spiritual world. So you're not, it's not exactly like the Catholic monasteries or Christian monasteries in that sense, that you're supposed to leave the world behind. You're, you're supposed to marry, you're supposed to engage, have businesses. That's part of the point of, of Sufism. In fact, it said Wait, that how is that part of the point? <laughs> why is, why is that part of the point? Because from the Sufi perspective, it's, it's actually easier to just retreat to a cave and... Mm -hmm just do your prayers all day, that that's kind of a cop-out, that really the, the real work is to be engaged in the world with all of the complexities that come along with that. In fact, it's said in Islam that marriage is half of your religion, because of course we know marriage is really, really hard. Anybody who's married knows that. It's where you practice the most yeah. and fail so, the most, yes. Right, exactly. So that's like half of your religion. So you're not to put, the, the ideal is not to leave the world behind. Although our, our saint, uh, Pierre Nardin, he did live in the trunk of a tree for uh, a while <laughs> in the forest uh, in Istanbul. But anyway, that was another story. But then he eventually did come back and uh, formed the Halbeti um, Drahi Lodge that was given to him by the Sultan. The property was given to him by the Sultan at the time um, in Istanbul. And it's still there. And I go every once in a while. I go to Istanbul and I visit the lodge and the Grand Sheikh is there and everything is just how it was in the 17th century. It's very interesting, actually. <laughs> That's fascinating. Yeah. Is celibacy uh, permitted in Islam? Or, for, or is there a... For in Judaism, as many of us know, celibacy is not considered a... It's frowned uh, upon. A holy path. Yeah, it's frowned upon. It's frowned upon. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. 
anybody have a question? How would you distinguish the differences between the different orders? Or I would say before that, what would you say all the different orders have in common okay. that make them Sufi? And then you could elaborate on some of the differences. Because we're looking for like a grounding in what this is. Sure. So, um, so this basically, as you said, the five pillars, the fasting, the salat, the charity, the pilgrimage to Mecca, I think I have that on here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that's the basics uh, of the practice. And then Sufism jumps off from there, and it becomes about your deeds, your, um, your good deeds, and it becomes about, eventually becomes about every breath, that every breath that you breathe should be a prayer, should be a remembrance of God. So that's like the end of, of the path. It starts with sort of your good deeds and bringing your awareness to the, to, um, the indwelling presence of God, acknowledging that, and then it eventually ends in that every, every time you look at somebody, it is the eye of God. Every time you speak, it is the speech of God. And every breath of yours is praising God. So Everything is God. Everything is God, essentially. And you're a vessel. Of, you become a vessel of that. That's, that's, I've, I, think I, I think I've met people that have embodied that in my life, and it's really intense to be around them. Um, it's no joke. <laughs> I'll just say that. <laughs> uh, M- Miriam over here has a question. Yeah. Uh, I want to know if Allah means God or if Allah is the name of God. Is there a word for God other than Allah in yes. Arabic? Yes. That's a very important question. Please answer that elaborately as you want, okay? Yeah, so there's 99 known names of God. Um, there's Sufis say that there's actually thousands of names for God, um, and there's Ismi Azam, which is a secret name of God that some Sufis are given uh, at some point or another in their path. Um, but there's 99 names that we know of, um, and they're used. Some of them are in our weird. Our, our Saint, uh, Pierre Nurdin Dragon, was given 28 names. Uh, so in our, on, in our path, we recite 28 names daily. Once you complete... Um, it's so Sufism is, is kind of like a training, so you go through stages, um, and part of our training is that you, when I took initiation in this order, I was given three names that are the basic building blocks of Sufism, which is La ilaha illallah, there is no God but God, Allah, which is the proper name of God, if also for Christians in the Arab world, they, Christians also call God Allah. And Jewish people, you know the word Elohim, yes. it's cognate. Allah and Elo- Elohim, which are our our cognate words. So, yeah. So there's Laila uh, Allah, Allah and Hu, which is uh, I think we chanted together at some point. It's, the word Hu, which is the same in Hebrew, means means him. Him. He. Yeah. He. That's one translation. Also, some people say that it's that's really beyond. Um, that it's the essence. The it name, has to it's be, called the name of essence. It has to be beyond gender. Right, because we're not dealing with gender when we're talking in these terms. But in gendered languages, men talk like men, so. <laughs> we're going to so. change that. <laughs> anyway, um, so then there's all the other names. So we have 28 names, uh, and some of them are in here. And there's, there's like three, three pages here of some of the names. And as you progress through the... the the saluk, as it's called, the path, 
um, the Sufi path, you're given an additional name. So in our tradition, it's La Ilaha that starts from day one. Then after you receive a certain dream and your and your teacher interprets it, you're given the name Haq, which means the truth. Then you're given the name Hai, which means the living one. I think we chanted that together right. too. Then you're given the name Kayum. Uh, Kayam. Kayum. Kayum. What does Kayum mean? Existing. It's like the. It's all, the. the it, it's the self-subsisting. Self-subsisting. Yes. Right. Ka, when we say Kayam in Hebrew, the Kiyum, that also it's it's the same word. Yeah. Uh, and then it Kahar, which is the triumphant one, and then it goes on and on and on. And and um, a lot of this is done via dream work. Um, the, if you see a certain color in your dream, it, it, um, there's color and, and number symbolization symbols, which I think Kabbalah also has. Um, so if you see, for instance, um, red in your dream, that means Allah. If you see green, that means who. If you see yellow, that's hawk. So the shape diagnoses you accordingly and gives you... It's like considered medicine So the shake, your soul. In, the Sufi yeah. shake could be compared to a medicine man, um, an oracle, a spirit, a rebbe, whose job it is to be the bridge between the spiritual world and the seeker? Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's, does that make sense, everybody? Kind of like an interpreter. Because interpreter. And yeah. is that different than an imam? Yes, very different. Oh, so tell us what an imam is since the word came up. In fact, in our tradition, um, a Sufi, our Sufi sheikhs are not allowed to be imams and vice versa. So, um, because the two are considered to be separate vocations in this world. The imam is the, is the, the person who leads the salat, uh, which is the ritual prayer. Um, and they have responsibilities for the community. They lead the Juma prayers on Friday the congregational prayers that are required. That's a, it's a fart, it's a requirement to go to the mosque on Fridays and pray Juma prayer, unless you're a woman and you can do it at home. Um, a Sufi sheikh is somebody who leads, in our tradition, now again, this varies from order to order, but in our tradition, the Sufi sheikh is the one that gives initiation to people, allows them to enter the order, diagnoses their spiritual condition through divine names and gives gives them the medicine of the divine names accordingly, monitors their dreams, um, monitors their spiritual progress, and also leads the zikr, which is the main um, communal prayer. So it's, it's comparable to the Juma for an imam on Fridays, uh, except the Sufis gather in our order, gather on Thursday nights. And in most Sufi orders throughout the world, they gather on Thursday nights. It's, it's actually the beginning of the day of Jummah, the, fri uh, the Friday, because in Islam, it, it, everything starts the night before with the rising, you know, the moon. Just like in the Jewish calendar, our, our day begins at sundown. That's why the holidays and the Sabbath all begin after sundown. That's the beginning of the day. So it's similar. I mean, it's ex exactly the same. So the Sufi sheikhs lead the, ritual, the, the communal ritual prayer of zikr on Thursday nights, and that's, that's their primary responsibility. So it's not only the person-to-person -person contact with all of, the, all of their marids, uh, the word marids basically means like disciple, um, but it's also leading the communal zikr practice, uh, which we've actually done the chanting that we did together, that is a form of zikr. 
Zikr, the, name, the word zikr means remembrance of God. Zikr means to remember. And like the Hebrew word zachor, zikr, same root, remember. And does Judaism have the differentiation between a sheikh and imam kind of thing? No. No, that is not a Jewish category. What's the difference between a rabbi and a rebbe? Um, a, ra- a, a rebbe is a rabbi in the Hasidic tradition. So whereas rabbis in general are not necessarily considered to be spiritual, um, uh, no, are not ne- aren't considered to be links for their disciples to um, uh, God, okay. transmitters, interpreters, right. like a Sufi sheikh. But a Rebbe is very much like a Sufi sheikh. But a Rebbe is a rabbi, and Rebbe is, um, I guess you'd say, a Yiddish intonation of, of rabbi, of, okay. of rabbi. So that's also interesting um, because you said inter- interpreters, and basically every school of Sufism is, is, a, is an ishtahad. Does anybody know what ishtahad means? Probably not. <laughs> it's an Arabic word. Uh, it means interpretation of the law. So we, we know that Sharia law, everybody's heard Sharia law, right? So that comes from the, the Quran, right, and the Hadith, which you spoke about last week. The Hadith are the oral traditions of the Prophet, um, of which there are thousands. Some are uh, through the Isnad, the, the lines of transmission. Some are considered to be sound Hadith, some are considered to be unsound Hadith. But again, that varies within the different schools of fiqh, which is law, Islamic law. Um, there's, and then your glossary. Huh? All in your glossary. Okay, great. So, yeah, so fiqh is Islamic law, and then you have different schools of fiqh for Sunnis and Shia. Remember we spoke about the Sunni-Shia thing? Um, so this is, like, really complex. So then you get into even smaller um, sort of levels of interpretation when you talk about Sufi orders, because every founding saint, like Pir Nardin Jirahi, my founding saint, creates an ishtahab, an interpretation of Islamic law, an interpretation of faith. So Pir Nardin took all of the Quranic and Hadith literature and the Islamic um, laws and created his own interpretation of that. So we have, a, we have a, our, own, our own version of the law, which is really quite fascinating. It is. There's thousands of, of founding saints. So then that means there's thousands of ishahads, thousands of interpretations. Wow. So is there, can you say there's something that keeps you all under the umbrella of Islam, despite all the differing interpretations? Is it the five pillars? Well, there, that's what, <laughs> so that goes back to the original question about what's the difference. Why do the fundamentalists have such a problem with Sufism? Because Good, they, that's a good way to round about Back yeah. to it now. Because there's uh, most Salafi and Wahhabi Muslims like in countries like Saudi Arabia um, have a real problem with saint worship. They feel that there should be nobody held up in high regard, no human being held up in high regard. They even go as far as to say that you should not pray to the Prophet Muhammad for intercession, which is... Something that is widely done throughout the Muslim world, but in Saudi Arabia, if you're standing, and I've had friends, that have, I haven't been to Saudi Arabia personally, but I have friends um, who've been in Saudi Arabia and from, uh, in front of the tomb of Muhammad, 
Prophet Muhammad in uh, Medina and who've opened their hands like this to pray and some Saudi guard comes over and yells, starts yelling at them in Arabic and kicks them out. Like you're not allowed to pray in front of the Prophet's tomb in Saudi Arabia. Oh, uh, yeah. It, it goes farther than that. The Saudis have actually um, devastated many of their archaeological sites. Uh, the graves of all of the um, wives of the prophets have been decimated. There was a there was an incredible shrine to Fatima, and it's been paved over as parking lot. Um, they they have many of the the sites of Islam. I, I believe that. Uh, Khadija, his first wife's house was made into a public toilet. I mean, oh, it's been, it, it's a real um, desecration of the sacred sites of Islam. And they're, I, I think they're even tearing down the Prophet's grave, as, as I understand it. That was one of the last things I, I've heard from I someone that they, they were... That, they, there would be a revolution on their hands. Well, anyway, they, they're, they're redoing, the, they're re, revamping it in some way, and there, there has been a lot of upset about it. We're, we're experiencing a lot of tragedy in the world uh, for people who, uh, because of this trend against any iconography, against any worship of a person, any of those things that's being described, so that any image... Anything in this extreme, extreme world, I don't know if you heard, you know, when one of the, uh, in, in, in um, Nimrud, which was just recaptured in Iraq, where there are 3,000-year-old palace there that's been the pride of the Iraqi people, under the hands of um, uh, ISIL, ISIS, they destroyed the archaeological site uh, because it had images of, and this will sound familiar to you, beings with the head of a person, the body of the bull and the wings of an eagle. Uh. If you've ever heard of Ezekiel's vision, uh, you know, we're dealing with the imagery of early, early, ancient Sumerian and Akkadian cultures. So, uh, so there's a lot of tragedy going on in the world because of that. And when, when, in, in, when religious extremists get control of the, the, um, the uh, levers of state power, that gives them the power to enforce and so this is one of the problems of the of our world yeah and it's it's um you know there there have been many attacks against sufi shrines people have you know blown up sufi shrines and attacked people like and this is muslims killing other muslims you know, gone into sufi shrines in pakistan as you mentioned shooting people at prayer time in salat that's like that's like the greatest sin in, in Islam. So I don't know. I'm not exactly sure how these people like think that they're under the banner of Islam somehow or they're martyrs or something. I'm not exactly sure how that how they're doing that mental gym that <laughs> mental gymnastics to do that, but they actually go into Sufi shrines and, and, and attack people and kill them. I was in India at Quadramoidin Chishti's tomb and there I just the week before Is that another Sufi uh, yeah. Sheikh? That's yeah. a, that's a Sufi the one of the saints in my particular order, the Chistia order. Yes. Yeah, I go there a lot. I have a very close connection to Shisiya as well. And um, I was there like the week before they had bombed uh, the Shisiya shrine. Somebody, they didn't get into the shrine itself, but they, they um, somebody had detonated a bomb like right outside in the pathway to the shrine. So, and that's in India, which is like, you know, um, kind of like, to my mind, like one of the most syncretic, syncretic places on earth outside of the United States. I mean, they're... Syncretism is, is a word that means... 
Um, sort of the commingling of different traditions, piece, where, peaceably, yeah. Where peaceably you take, you mix and match. That's called syncretism in fancy language. So, for instance... And are you going to get that thing you mentioned a few weeks ago about, you know, like I brought my Catholic friend today, and I said in the car, we ran out of gas, that's why we were late. Um, I said, um, you know, when I grew up, I knew everybody didn't like me because I was Jewish, but I didn't know they didn't like each other. <laughs> and then later I learned we don't like each other either. So then we get to a world where nobody likes each other, and you mentioned something about maybe this is a whole thing about sibling rivalry. Ah, uh, yes, we'll get to that. <laughs> we'll get to that. But uh, I want to continue for us to get a sense of what Sufism is. Yeah, Quadramundin Chassis' tomb is actually, for me, um, a very interesting illustration of what Sufism is. Because he, he's called the Sultan of Hind, Hindustan, which is the name of what, what India was called uh, before the British came. And, um, so uh, he, he was really, he opened the door to everyone. Um, Christians, Jain, Buddhists, Hindus, even today, uh, if you're at his shrine in Ajmer in, in Rajasthan, outside of Delhi, um, there's every matter of person coming through praying there. There's, you know, people come there. He, he has certain things that he's known for, so people go to his shrine to ask for certain things, like marriage or a child. Khwaja, which means master. Uh, Moinuddin, which, what's Moinuddin mean again? Moinuddin, like the... The Something of the, the way, but yeah, the, the religion. Oh well. Anyway, Moinuddin Chisti, which is C H I S H T Y, Chisti. Yeah. <laughs> That's a mouthful. Yeah, that is. So, uh, and his his whole you know approach to the practice was really to open. Um, his doors to everyone, and, and it's quite something because you could, you know, people come there with all, all matter of illnesses and, you know, lepers, and you're just kind of walking along with all these people that are like missing limbs, and, um, and then they feed everybody there too, which is quite something because you're talking about thousands, you know, of people a day, like 20 or 30,000 people come through there a day. I mean, it's India, so you, the numbers are pretty massive. I <laughs> And they have these giant, you know, iron pots there that are like, like, probably like thirty feet high, and somebody has to like walk up on a ladder to stir the food. But they, they actually cook, they cook biryani like for the feast days. They give out like um, biryani, which is like a Indian dish, to all the poor people. They feed like hundreds of thousands of people there at the shrines. Well. Um, I'm very close to one of the Khadims, like one of the grand, great, 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 great grandsons of uh, of Quadramundi Chisti, and he, you know, he's always telling me, like, he'll send me an email, like, yeah, we just fed like 200,000 people last week. I'm like, you know, <laughs> what? I'm just like, okay. So anyway, so that, and it's a, it's a, it's kind of like a city, and he has so many ancestors now that they, the Khadims, like the family members, all live there. They've all built houses there. And it's very interesting. If you ever have a chance to go to India, it's a, it's a fascinating place to go visit. And they're, they're so sweet. They're like the most amazing people. Well, what part of India is it? South? It's in Rajasthan, near the it's Taj. It's in Rajasthan? Yeah. Wow, wow. It's very close to the Taj Mahal. It's like about Rabia, let me ask you another question. So something that 
is the only thing that many of us know about Sufism is whirling dervishes. Yes. Mm -hmm. So why don't you just talk about that in its context for us uh, sure. some. Would that be okay? Yeah. I, I think that'll be helpful too. Sure, yeah. So um, we actually have Medlana Rumi in our silsila. So Rumi, the poet Rumi. Do you all know who the poet Rumi is? Yes. Uh, if you don't, it's okay. <laughs> we'll tell you. Uh, so say who he is. Sure. He's known as Meblana, Master uh, Jalaluddin Rumi. Um, he was born in Balkh in present-day Afghanistan, and um, he had to leave there at some point when he was like 10 years old or something because of invading Mongol hordes that were burning everything in their way, and his father was... What was their problem? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's like, if you don't know that this is how humans have behaved forever and that we're doing what we can to try to rise to another level, it's nobody's individual fault. I just want us to be clear about that. Um, so, yeah, so Rumi had to leave his homeland, Khorasan. Uh, what century? Or uh, what year? Uh, Twelve... 12th century, 11-something. The 1100s, okay. Yeah, late, middle 1100s. Um, he had to leave Khorasan with his father, who was a religious scholar. And he ended up, they ended up traveling around and you know, going to Mecca and going all, all around. And then they ended up in Turkey, um, in this place that was um, sort of... I'm just trying to think if it was already part of the Seljuk Empire, but it was it was a, a, a center of learning, uh, scholarly learning, and also mysticism. Uh, it's called Konya, and it's in Anatolia, um, which is um, central central Anatolia. It's it's in Turkey, about like I don't know how many miles from Istanbul, but it's 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 like a flight, a two-hour flight from Istanbul, and um, Konya was already like an amazing place when Rumi arrived there um, with many Sufis and a very complex Sufi culture. Um, but he, he was already, he was a religious judge actually when he came there. He was like a very staid scholar. He had been raised by his father who was also a religious scholar. So he was like steeped in the religion, um, but he really was a not a mystic yet. You know, he was young. So then one day he was, um, in Konya, and he met this man named Shems of Tabriz. Shems, um, there's not that much information about Shems, who he was. There's, there was one, there's been one or two books translated into English about him. Um, some, some say he, you know, he was like a wandering dervish. Um, and he basically, he, when he met Rumi, there was like this alchemical, uh, fire that sort of transmit, transmitted between them, heart to heart, it said. <clears throat> when they met, supposedly they went into Halbet together immediately, and they just like stayed together for like seven days and didn't leave, and just were like sort of, um, I guess comparing notes. <laughs> I'm not, I don't know what happened in that room, but anyway, they were together. They didn't, and, and actually Shems was eventually murdered by... It's speculated. Nobody really knows what happened to Shems. He just disappeared one day. But there's many um, Turkish uh, stories about the fact that Shems was murdered by some of Rumi's close disciples who didn't like 
this connection that had formed between them. And from that moment of meeting Shems, Rumi really became like a lover. He became a mystic. He, his heart was opened, and he was no longer just a religious scholar. He was like alive. He started composing poetry, and he said that the poems were Shem, were actually in Shems's voice. Like he would sign it, Shems of Tabriz, or it was his poems. And, um, and that's really why we have all this amazing poetry from Rumi. We have the Divani Shems, like he called it, um, the book of Shens, like the works of Shens. Um, so long story short, Rumi becomes this amazing mystic and he <coughs> starts creating this um, practice of whirling around one's axis, which you've oh, probably Rumi. seen. People. Rumi is the founder. Yes. Yes. So it's a little bit tricky because Rumi himself began whirling one day because he was in the blacksmith's market in Konya where they were like pounding iron and he listened to the rhythmic pounding of the iron and he started whirling. So he did it really and he had this vision of himself like his whole, his whole body became like the cosmos and he saw his heart becoming like a sun and it was like this very mystical vision. It wasn't at all like supposed to be like a sober, you know, spiritual practice that people get really like, you know, like a Zen Buddhist kind of practice, like very strict. Like the Mevlevis are super strict. You go and study with them in, in Turkey, like you have to clean toilets first for like three months before they even like take you in to like even consider teaching you how to whirl. And this was just Rumi one day, like walking through the blacksmith market, like whirling around, you know, because he was in ecstasy. So, but if you see the whirling dervishes on stage, like they travel the world, troops of whirling dervishes. Uh, actually, my, my grand sheikh uh, in Istanbul, uh, Tudal Efendi, he's actually also a Mevlevi sheikh. He's also a sheikh in the Mevlevi order, uh, Rumi's order. So, um, so he actually takes his, his uh, whirling dervishes with him on tour throughout the world. He's, he's given money by the Turkish government to do that. Um, and so is whirling like prayer? It is. It's a moving meditation. So mm -hmm. it started out as this ecstatic opening that Rumi had. Um, and he would continue, he would just whirl spontaneously uh, when they were in zikr gatherings, like they were doing chanting, like we were all doing together. He would just get up and start whirling. Like it was a very spontaneous thing. But when he passed, when Rumi passed away, his son, Sultan Veled, he uh, codified the order and made it a serious discipline. Um, and then the Mevlevi order was founded. So Rumi himself didn't actually found the Mevlevi order. Although he was a sheikh and he did have a lodge and he had disciples, um, all of the codification came later with his son. Can I interrupt for a second? You're probably familiar with that dynamic. Uh, the spiritual um, ecstatic magnetic leader who opens the door to the world usually isn't the one who founds the movement. Right? The movement is founded by his followers or his next in line. Or, and this is true, I'd say, uh, in all my studies uh, of religion, Jesus didn't found Christianity. Paul was the framer, one of his disciples, right? And so that's a very... Rabbi Nachman of Bratislav, you know, who was an incredible ecstatic leader, it was his... Um, uh, it was Natan, his, uh, like... Scribe, his manuensis, who, who actually codified the teachings. And then you're faced with one of, again, this is human, everybody. This isn't somebody's fault. Um, which is that you have a spiritual opening, a burning bush, 
uh, a death and resurrection experience. Uh, you know, uh, uh, whirling around until your heart is the sun, and the, you know, and this possibility in human experience, many of us are drawn to it, right? Because it 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 eliminates the um, limitations of the body. It 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 transcends the ego. It's what so many of us yearn for. Once somebody has shown us how they do it, we want to learn how. How do you learn how? You have to set up a way to learn it. And so a system gets developed. And that system, almost inevitably, I would say inevitably, becomes a system where people forget why they're doing the system. <laughs> right? And then you need a revival movement to say, uh-uh, no, no, it's not just doing it. There's a reason we're doing this. And it's not just to assert our power or to get brownie points with the big guy in the sky. It's because there's an experience we're after. That's the underground river of Sufism, yeah. and it's the underground river of all spiritual revival movements. Yeah. Right? It's human. You routinize it so that you can reproduce it. But in the routinization, you lose almost at some point the the yeah the the juice the awe the um so the the so I want you to understand again that that's not a just a religious problem that's a problem with every revolutionary movement it's a problem with everything where we start with a sense of there's so much possible we sense it and this person can get us there and then we try to follow it. We set up a system, we study the system, and then we forget why we're studying the system. And so you need constant reinvention, constant revival. And again, that's not a problem of organized religion per se, it's a problem of human communities. So I want to also just lay that out as a framework. Is that, is that clear, what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah, I just um, I want to say just, one thing too. Oh, yeah, sure. please do, Eddie. Um, I, to that point, right now in Turkey, the SEMA, it's called, the whirling dervishes are actually paid by the government. They're, they don't have any Sufi training. Um, oh, you mean the ones like the Malata? Yeah. The ones, the it's a, a lot of, of yeah. it's a theatrical troupe essentially. And I went to, I went to the Urs, the death celebration for Mevlana Rumi, um, and saw, you know, went to the formal government-sponsored SEMA that takes place in this huge auditorium and felt nothing. I sat under the feet of, you know, in a huge crowded room where there was barely any room to move, under the feet of a, a, a number of people who were whirling, and taught, you could just feel the incredible inspiration, the letting go. It was such a blessing. And you could just feel the, because as part of, that practice is actually also, part of it is um, seen as not just something that you're doing for yourself, but something that you're, you're churning and you're blessing, the, the, you're blessing others, it's, it's, it's seen as a giving. Um, and so, like a water sprinkler. Yes, yes. And you know, you're, you're, the divine is coming exactly. through you and is, is being spread um, by your by your movement. So to, to you know to experience that and to really experience someone who's actually doing that. Now they 
the, pe the people I'm talking about probably did have Mevlevi training, but they were not doing the traditional, very formal Mevlevi Sema, which... Yes. Uh, so it became commodified. It's like going to Hawaii and watching a hula performance, <laughs> right? Uh, where you are a consumer of the experience and they are doing it for a job. And that's, that's what we do. So people who whirl are dervishes, by definition? Yeah. So, so it's a little complicated in Turkey for a few reasons. I'll just quickly, this is like a little side point, and then I want to go back to say something else. Great, about. you're doing great. Um, but, so Turkey is, is an interesting example. It's one of the most amazing places in the Muslim world because it's been secular since the founding of the Turkish, uh, Turkish Republic and the falling of the Ottoman Empire in 1925. Um, so the interesting thing was, though, when Ataturk formed the Turkish Republic, he actually outlawed Sufism. Now, why did he do that? Because the Sufi sheikhs, the leaders of all these orders, they were aligned to the Ottoman Sultan. They, there was always imperial ties uh, between the Sufi orders. The only uh, lodge, actually our lodge was allowed to function. Uh, they had to leave the building itself. The building was put under lock and key. It was closed uh, in 1925. But, it, but we were allowed to still continue, whereas many Sufi sheikhs were, were exiled to an island in the Black Sea and left to die there by the Turkish government. Um, so, really? By yes. the Ataturk government? Yes. Wow. Nobody knows this. It's very interesting. It's even more interesting today because of the fact that Turkey... I just love when I turn on the television and I see Turkey, you know, and the whirling dervishes, and like, they're just like promoting themselves as these like, you know, exemplars of Sufism, whereas really they, they really tried to just, Ataturk really tried to destroy Sufism. He didn't succeed, but he did, he did you know, deal it a, a good blow. Um, but our, our order was one of the orders that was allowed to continue um, because Ataturk actually had some ties. He did actually have Sufi ties, um, and one of them was to our order. The other order that was allowed to remain open was the Mevlevi order, and that's Mevlana Rumi. Um, so Rumi's order was actually allowed to continue. Um, so that is one of the reasons why um, you see this, this tradition continuing in Turkey. Um, did you have a question about that? I just wanted to interject because sure. Ataturk is very dear to me in a lot of ways. Yeah. And so I just want to say that Ataturk was against all religion because yes. he was, so that's very clear. I think it should be clear. Not only just Sufis. Because Sufism. Sufis oh, were yeah. just part of, they were not the major problem. The major problem was the Salafi and the Sunni who were, yes. you know, who were very strict. And Ataturk was a modernization. Okay. There's, there's a lot of rum, uh, rumors about him. He was from Saloniki, actually. Uh, which was part of right. the Turkish Empire at the right. time, and nobody really knows what his ethnic origin is either. So, yeah. you know, I, I oh, think how I interesting. just wanted to be... It wasn't targeted just at Sufism, no, it was, no, no, it was he, a modern nationalist oh, yes. uh, attempt to trans... The hijab, the hijab was forbidden. Oh, yeah, right. and, so, and, and, uh, yeah. and the Fez, ago. you know, everybody knows the Fez the hat. The uh, was yes. of its time. Right, yeah. so hijab again, this was in the early 20th century, yeah. Modernity can be just, the attempt to impose modern values can be just as mm -hmm. fanatical as any other, as long as people are at it. Remember, there's, we, we are the problem, okay? Keep it in mind. Yeah, I mean, people used to have, you know, calligraphies on the wall and Quran and all sorts of things. And then now, you know, you can know immediately when you go into a Turkish household if 
if they're uh, a secularist, an Ataturk secularist, or a general, or somebody aligned with the military, because they always have a picture of Ataturk there on the, <laughs> on the wall, and no calligraphy, you know, it's like, it's very interesting, Turkey's very interesting that way. Um, and then we'll see how it all plays out now, because Erdogan is, is Islamist, so he wants, he wants more of an Islamic, uh, main, mainstream Islamic, not Sufi Islamic, but mainstream Islamic, um, ethos to, to develop there. Um, so, but I don't want to get too sidetracked with politics, but I just think it's very interesting that Sufism is still technically illegal in Turkey. So all oh. of these, yes, all these things that I go and do over there uh, are illegal. So when I go there, I'm very careful. I always keep that in the back of my mind because there are police, uh, there are people that kind of, you know, keep a lookout. Wow. I've been approached a couple of times on my way uh, to the, my Sufi lodge in, in um, Istanbul because it's a very conservative neighborhood. And so me, as like an American, I stick out really badly there, and, and people are always like, oh, are you going to see the Sufi Sheikh? And I'm always like, oh, what Sufi Sheikh? Like, no, you know, no. Like, wow. <laughs> just keep going. <laughs> so anyway, but I just want to say one thing about Mevlana Rumi and today, like the difference between at his time and today. So Rumi had women around him. He was very open to women's participation. He had daughters. Um, he had many women Sufi saints, and that's something I haven't mentioned. I just realized uh, before when we were all Talk talking about the book you're writing. Yeah, I was just realizing that I wasn't really speaking about the women. There have been extremely influential women throughout the history of, of Sufism. Now, Muslim history, it's it's you know, and if you go anywhere in the world, for instance, and you mentioned Rabi al Dawiya, who was a ninth century Sufi saint who lived in Iraq, uh, any Muslim. Anywhere, even in Saudi Arabia, will know who Rabi al Dawiya was. She was like a famous Sufi. And she had male and female disciples. It's not just like she was sitting in a room teaching women. She was, some of the top Sufi, uh, Sufi saints and scholars would come to her and, and uh, consult her on different matters. Um, so, and there's many, this is well documented. It's not just like a, you know, it's not some like idea that people have. It's, it's really documented that she was an amazing saint. And there's many others. Um, a lot of Sufi saints, women saints, um, there's thousands of them. Some of them remained unnamed because uh, for whatever reason, whether it was the male bias, historians like Jami and some of the different historians, um, Sulami, Al-Sulami, whether or not they, they chose not to name them or the women themselves probably out of, you know, humility didn't give their names. So, But we have, we have thousands of, of entries in different... Islamic biographical, like hagiographical uh, dictionaries that have thousands of women's names. But I just wanted to say that Rumi himself was very, very open to women being around, um, around him, his close disciples, his collaborators, musicians. This was like a very, very much a part of um, the landscape in Konya at that time. And today, uh, if you go to Turkey and you try to uh, learn to be a semizen, to be trained as a semizen. Uh, Wait, what's is, a semizen? A semizen is a whirler. A whirler? To be formally trained in the Medlevi order to, to whirl. Um, it's extremely difficult as a woman. You, can, you have to really seek out a teacher that's willing to teach you, and they're few and far between. Um, to even have the garments made. I, I had actually the, the uh, tenure made for me by the tailor of the Medlevis, but he was like, don't tell anybody I made it for you. <laughs> you oh, know, wow. it's like, it's really, you know, it's like, it's kind of a no-no, you know, women semizens. 
uh, women whirlers. So, um, and the interesting thing is that I I'm writing a book on Sufi women, and I interviewed the great, 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 great granddaughter of Mevlana, Rumi, um, and I had, I had been with her. Her name is Essine Chelebi. I don't know if you know Essine Chelebi. So I have been personally with her in gatherings in different parts of the world uh, where she's leading the Sema, leading the whirling. But when I was sitting with her in Istanbul in her house doing a formal interview on, on record, she told me that she's, she never leads Sema and that she's not allowed by her brothers and different people within the Chelebiya, the, the family and the Medlevi order. And I asked her three times, because I've been in Sema when she was like, but she's like, nope, nope, nope. I've never, no, I don't need Sema. No, no, it's forbidden, and I accept that, and that's fine. And I'm, and I'm just like, you know, so finally my translator was looking at me like, you know, just drop it, you know. She doesn't want to say it on the record. So I was like, you know, as a Westerner, it was a little hard for me, because I was kind of like, well, you know. Um, but that's just, that's her position. And she, I guess, also because of the political situation in Turkey, or whatever the reason, I'm not sure, but um, she is not allowed by the powers that be of the Medlevi order to lead Sema, and even though I personally witnessed her doing so. But um, May I say something in sure. comparison? Present day, last, uh, oh gosh, it's uh, over a year ago, we had a gathering of women Torah scribes, a c conference here at our synagogue, of which there are maybe 20 around the world. In order to get trained, they had to find a male scribe who would teach them but who couldn't let anyone know that he was training them. So it's a similar kind of uh, underground subversion, which now these women are training each other and uh, are selling their Torahs openly to uh, progressive communities. So um, it, it, it makes me think about, that it just makes me think about something that I don't actually know. The number of things that are going on in the ultra-Orthodox Jewish world uh, that we might not know about because n nobody feels safe to talk about it amongst the women there, maybe also in the, uh, in the Sufi world. Yes. I, I just wanted to reflect on that. Susan? Um, could you say, do you plan to tell us something about what the training would consist of to, to learn the whirling? Oh, can you talk about what the training consists of without, uh, that's for public consumption or? Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, in fact, I'm going to be uh, teaching, inshallah, and leading a sema at the abode of the message on December 17th, if you're around. And oh, that's it's just not that far. about an hour away. It's a little far. It's in New Lebanon. <laughs> I'm completely open, by the way, about this stuff. So oh, okay. whoever, whatever Sheikh has given me, whatever they've given me, they're just going to have to deal with it. <laughs> no, they all know that I'm open. I, I tell them. Great, great. So what um, goes into the training? That's a great question. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's um, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a full life training, it, you know, I mean, it's like every moment, but the basics of Sema is very simple. We've all been whirling since we were children, you know, and just as Rumi did in the blacksmith's market. So there really isn't like, it's not, that's what I meant in the beginning when I said it's not like some sober, formal, I don't see it that way at all. It's really like this ecstatic outpouring. Um, but in terms of actual training, there are things that one needs to learn how to do just to be safe and to learn how to move energy through the body and to become really a conduit of divine energy because that's, that's kind of the point of, of the Sema practice. Is you, you ha you're, 
using your, your body as a vessel, like you were saying, a water sprinkler. That's a perfect image <laughs> that we're really using. And, and Karina, you were saying to, be, to bestow blessings upon um, the community. And, and, um, but yeah, as a child, when you're whirling, you just whirl to get dizzy or puke. <laughs> when okay. you're whirling for a religious purpose, is there some training to get you to be able to do that for hours at a time? Yes. Yes, there's, there is a training, and it, and it involves sort of like a nail on a piece of wood and some salt. And that's like, you know, you have to learn how to turn around this nail without cutting your foot and that kind of thing. But, um, and then, but basically the long and the short of it, anybody can whirl. And on Thursday nights in New York City in Tribeca, we have... I just want to say, when I, in my dance training, we, pre I mean, ball ballerinas, ba ballet dancers who learn to spot, yes. you learn how to whirl without getting dizzy. Yeah. Um, you can do it, actually. I've done it in a completely secular dance context, and it's fantastic. I mean, the, the whirl, it's just a, it's a perceptual kind of trip, so uh, you can learn how to do that. Yeah, and I would say that it's really a meditation, because you have to let go. If yes. you try to whirl and you still, and your mind is going to immediately say, I'm, uh, uh, I don't know what's going on, that everything's whirling, you know, flowing around, I can't see anything, I don't know where I am. And if you stick with that narrative and you follow that, that will take you in one direction. But if you're able to center yourself and enter your heart and really and concentrate on your feet, and those are all things that I help people to get, you know, used to those ideas. Um, and you really stay centered and you can let go, then you, you'll see that there's a column of energy that's always flowing inside of you. And that column of energy will keep you completely still inside and you will not get dizzy. It's only when you, when you indulge in the thoughts and you allow your <coughs> mind to control what's going on and you start to worry and you're like, I'm gonna fall. Ah, I can't see anything, I don't know where, you know, because it's not about spotting in, in a ballet sense, it's about spotting inwardly. That's you have right. To keep your eyes, right. your inner vision activated. Right. And, you know, you don't close your eyes, but you kind of lower your eyelids. Um, and everything is flowing around you, and you have to be able to find your center. But it's there. We all have it. It's not something that you need to be trained to do. It's, it's innate. So. It's another way to short-circuit our desire for control. Mm. Um, and... Um, uh, so I have another question. So you mentioned earlier that the, some of the first steps of uh, Sufi-ish training in seeing God in everything and that everything is God is through good deeds. Yeah. Uh, like what? <laughs> in other words, because, yeah. because in the Jewish system of, Jew, of Kabbalah, the Jewish system is a system of mitzvot, of doing good deeds and other actions in which you imbue your desire to see God in everything. And through practicing the mitzvot, you can be a Jew who practices the mitzvot for the sake of checking them off. I lit my Shabbos candles. Right? And therefore I'm a good Jew. And that's the forgetting that happens that I've been talking about. If you have this spiritual orientation, you know that you're lighting the Shabbos candles in order to awaken something in you, you're practicing something. Just like practicing the piano, you're practicing the intention of lighting the Shabbos candles. So, or when you give someone charity, you can just throw them the coins and check it off. Better than nothing, right? Or, 
or you can give them with the intention that our tradition has developed of what that giving is supposed to awaken in you so that every action in Jewish spiritual teaching and mysticism is an action in order to awaken the divine flow into your body. Does that make sense, everyone? I'll recognize you in a second. Um, so that's why I'm asking, could because doing deeds is such a central part of the Jewish system, both it's on its um, formal level and on its spiritual level, that I wanted to ask about those good deeds. Let me hear what you wanted to say, and then I want to hear what, uh, what yes? Isn't there a uh, school of thought, though, that says just by the action of doing ritualistic activities, you awaken the spiritual you don't start with the spiritual and do the activity, but you... But you can only awaken it if your intention is to awaken it. If you are asleep to the possibility of being transformed by the action, then it, it can only happen if, you're, if you are aware of and awake to how this action might transform you. Otherwise, it'll just be... Even the rote repetition... The rote repetition... Think about anything you might practice. If you do it by rote repetition without your fullness and your attention on it, it's not going to give you back its insight. And it's be if you cook, if you're a beautiful chef, but you're not invested in the ingredients that you're doing, you're not going to master your craft. So it's the same with any deed. You'll get better at it, but unless you're invested in it. So even the rote repetition requires investment. Ah, so, yes. Uh, sometimes the activity is its own reward. That's right. That's right. But for many activities, you can fulfill them uh, without any attention put on them, so, especially when you're uh, doing, you know, interacting with other people or saying a blessing before you eat or, or, or. Yeah. So, yeah, I hear you, but I still would, would posit that not just mystical Judaism, but rabbinic Judaism is crystal clear that you're, without your inner intention to fulfill this activity, it's, it, it doesn't offer its rewards. Uh, yes, Michael. It's really interesting because, as you know, I grew up Orthodox Jewish, and what you're saying now totally doesn't, because one of the things that the rabbis used to tell me all the time, because I was a very curious kid, mm -hmm. wanted to know, why do we do this stuff? And they said, na'aseh venishmat. Mm -hmm. And that's what the children of Israel Which means said. do it and you'll understand. Right. And, well, that's what you're do saying. Do it and then we will hear. It can be interpreted in a lot of ways. And so, and, and, and that's one of the key differences, I think, between fundamentalism and what we're doing here is that do it. First of all, do it. Afterwards, if you don't understand, we'll try to explain to you. And even if you don't understand, you still have to do it. So it's, 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 it's interesting. There are different perspectives on it. That's right. Yeah. The, the rabbinic, pre-Islamic, the rabbinic and pre-Kabbalah take on this is that there's the keva, which is a Hebrew word which means the form, the practice, and there's kavana, which means the intention you put into the action. Mm -hmm. And the rabbis are very clear that kavana, if you have lots of intention, but you don't have a form to pour it into, it's just going to spill out on the floor. But if you have kavan, keva, you have a fixed form, but you don't have no inner intention, it's an empty shell. So we are left with the problem, again, of being human, which is how to match our insides and our outsides, how to make it real. Uh, yes, Joya. The uh, couple of things first to me that 
Speak a little louder. To find God, what doesn't add, one subtracts. The more you can subtract, the more you find God. And the other thing is that the teacher, be it male or female, androgynous anything, the teacher shows the door, but the pupil must walk through it. Mm -hmm. And that means that every single person here can walk through the door with whatever they have already, it's already there, and they will find that thing. But the thing, I, then I was saying, that's so abstracted, but I don't mean it abstract. I mean yeah. it literally, I mean physically in a genuine way. Also, that when Rumi was dealing with that first dance, he was dealing with people who were smiths. Smiths were very special people. They dealt with the under fire of the earth itself, that fire that comes from below. They made something with it that was useful to everyone, and they were magical because they often, there are many things about them. There's a big history about smithies, and what he found there was not just the literal. What he understood in his heart was universal. So he could see the stars moving, the fire from below and from above, because he did not divide them. And so when he danced, he let it go, and he found it. But that's not easy. But no. it is true. It is absolutely true. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, yes, Karuna. Sort of going along with that, um, one of the um, tenets of Sufism is that um, in Arabic, mutakabla antamutu, die before you die. To really die to everything that is not Allah is really a goal of the, of the dervish, of the Sufi. And um, so there's a, whole, there's a whole aspect of Sufism. And it's not to say that it's not aesthetic, but it's um, the ability to let go, to accept what whatever comes along and um, uh, and that that that's a constant thread a constant understanding of Sufism mm, thank you so I want to go back to my question and then I want to actually take that further but the question was about the good deeds mm -hmm. how does that part of the training of uh, of um, not a Sufi what would you call someone um, <clears throat> like an adept a dervish a dervish or an adept yeah um, yeah, I just wanted to say there is a hadith that goes that says that one moment of contemplation is better than a thousand moments of prayer. So that's uh, a hadith. That's an oral tradition of, of the prophet. One moment of contemplation is better than a thousand moments of prayer. So that kind of sums up this idea of presence. Um, that really one is present with God. Presuming that means rote prayer. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Your prayer can be infused with a contemplative awareness. Yes. At which point, everything, right. it's all one. Yes. And it's interesting that she mentioned the doorway, walking to the doorway, because as I said in the first day, uh, dar, darvish means dar, means doorway. So the, the Sufi adept, the darvish, is somebody who is sitting on the doorway um, and walking, having one foot in this world and one foot in the world of oh, the spiritual, oh. the spiritual, the world of the divine. Dervish is, and dervish, that's the same thing? Yeah, dervish. Dervish is like the English 
Darvish is like a Persian. Oh, so you must put Darvish. And in the other world that your foot is in, you know, you mentioned when he spun, his heart came like the sun and his feet like the stars. Where in your tradition, in Sufi or Islam or Muslim, is, um, where is humankind in relation to the firmament and beyond? Uh, it's, uh, it's a big like question, a really but it's well, well, well articulated, though. Thank, Thank you. you. It's a really good question. Um, I mean, it goes into, I guess, the seven levels of the soul. Um, so seven levels of the soul is part of Islamic uh, yes. teaching. Okay. Yeah, so there's different levels of, of understanding. So I'll, I'll just start with saying, you had asked me about good deeds. So I don't want to go too far off. but um, Answer that question, then you can come back to this. There's four, four levels of basic Islamic understanding. There's the Sharia, the law. Um, there's the uh, Tariqa, which is the level of tarik. Tariqa means spiritual community. Um, there's the Hakikat, Hak means truth. So there's a level when everyone, when the person, becomes, whether you're speaking about a spiritual community or you're speaking about a person, when somebody enters the hakikat level of understanding, then everything becomes submerged in the truth. Their personal idea of themselves is becomes merged with God. That's the third level of understanding, hakikat. Then there's the return to the sharia. So you kind of go back, but you're going forward to the marifa. Marifa means gnosis. Gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge of the divine, where you've embodied that. So it's a return back to the Sharia, back to the, back to the structures of the law, and the structures of this level of physical reality. But after having imbibed the levels of, of fana, annihilation in the truth, hakika, annihilation of oneself. So when you pass through the door of... of the law, then you pass through the door of the tariq, the spiritual community, you find your teacher, you enter the path, the saluk, you finish the saluk and you enter fana, annihilation, with the hakikat, then you return back to this world, and back to the structures of this world, and physical reality with marifa, with the gnosis, the gnostic understanding. So you've, you've, now you're walking the path of gnostic understanding as God in human form. That's the Sufi understanding. You've, you've merged into the oneness of God and you've returned to this physical reality. So. That's so remember, cool. I don't no, 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 that's so that. cool. Uh, uh, um, yes, let's get a cup. Let's, anyway, let's, let's run with that one for yeah. a minute. Ellen. Okay. No, no, no. Oh, seven levels of the soul, yeah. but you were discussing four. Yeah, so this is the four levels of. Um, <laughs> Oh man, now I'm well, so this is the four doing, basic levels oh of, of oh you were asking what the difference is between Muslims and Sufis and how we fit in, that's why. So so this is the basic understanding of Muslims and Sufis of the world. So even Muslims that are following mainstream Islam and not following Sufism are going to understand what the Sharia, the ha the Tariqat, Hakikat, Marifat, they're gonna understand that and they're gonna agree that that's so. Then we get into higher levels of mystic understanding when you get into the levels of the soul, and that feeds into this, again, the science of divine names and diagnosing one's soul and 
it's like it goes on and on and on. So how how so the you... four, the seven, they're shorthands. Yes. You know, it's not like if you know all seven, you got it. It's like yes. it's like it's a map. Exactly. And um, and the good deeds is part of it because in order to progress from uh, the next nafs al-amara, which is the physical, the lowest level of the nafs. So the nafs is, is um, the soul. And this goes nefesh. into nefesh. Mm-hmm. In so, Hebrew. So you, 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 it says we're all born with, in the state of nafs al-amara, which is... Um, I don't like this interpretation, but people say like the animal soul or the animalistic soul or like it's like a, it's a basic... We're alive, but we're not realized. Yes. And then through, through this progression of imbibing the law and imbibing the teachings of the teacher, whether it's an inner teacher. By the way, there's a lot of Sufis that are called Kalandars and they don't have an exterior teacher. They have an interior teacher. So I just want to put that out there. Cool. There are Sufis that don't follow a master. And some say Shams of, of Tabriz was a Kalandar, the, the, the teacher of grooming. So, um, and that's where the good deeds come in, because in order to progress from Nafs al-Amara to uh, Nafs al-Safiya, the pure, the pure soul, one has to do good deeds. That That's, whether it's good deeds as in charity and, you know, uh, helping those in need, or visiting the sick, or doing your prayers, or being a you know um, law-abiding citizen, or whatever, or it's so much so that if you even think a thought, a negative thought about somebody, that that is a mark against your soul. That there are recording angels on the right and left of us that are recording our our thoughts and our deeds. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Also in Judaism. Yeah. Judaism. Yeah. So, um, and we are saying during the Salat, the ritual prayer, we say, Assalamu alaikum, Assalamu alaikum. The reason why people do that at the end of the prayer. Wait a minute. Really? <laughs> <laughs> oh, go on, go on. So you're talking to the angel yeah, on each yeah, shoulder? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I don't know. Shalom aleichem, which is the prayer that we uh, say to welcome Shabbat that was written in the 1600s by. The mystics in northern Israel who were definitely influenced in the Ottoman Empire by Sufi teachings is that an, um, uh, you have an angel on each shoulder oh. and you're saying Shalom Aleichem, you're saying wow. Shalom Aleichem, wow. angels of peace, and you want, wow. yeah, so that's it's amazing. like, okay, I see it. That's, that's where that came from. All right. Yeah, oh. yeah and, and, and in fact, the entire Salat practice uh, that we, that Muslims do that you've seen people lined up in lines and doing salat. It looks kind of like yoga. That was given to the Prophet Muhammad during his ascension, the Midrash, um, this heavenly ascension that he took. It was a vision, and each of the movements of the salat was was um, shown to him. An angel showed him. It, it, it said that that the salat is actually. The prostrations that we do in Salat, the ritual prayer, are actually the prostrations that are always happening. The angels are always doing towards the throne of God. Okay, that's so it's, a, it's a mirror, it's so to speak. Exact analog, again, with Jewish teachings about how the angels are constantly praising God. That's all they do. 
but that when we pray at the set times, our job is to mirror the heavenly uh, um, choir, basically, with our praise. Ellen? So what I was wondering when you talked about the four levels and you reach a high point of knowing and understanding, is that once or is it a spiral? You reach a level and you enjoy that level and then you begin again. Yeah. I w- is that... Most of the Sufi saints say that it's a constant process. In fact, one of my teachers who was this very, very high being. I met her a month before she passed away uh, in Turkey. And um, she said, never never put your suitcases down. Never stop the journey. Never, never say, okay, I've arrived. Just keep going. Uh huh. Yes, one of our teachers, uh, Art Waskow, especially like Rabbi Art Waskow, likes to teach about the Jewish cycle of time, of life, as being not a cycle, but a s- ascending spiral, so that you keep following it, and each time you reach, God willing, the next, that, that, that vertical analog to where you were before, you're seeing it from a different vantage point, and you have a different understanding of why you've been doing it. Can we wait with that question? It's on the syllabus. That's a great question. It's on the syllabus, but I wanna, I'm, not, I, I'm not ready to jump there yet. Um, uh, yes, Barry. How much of this is different to our reflection in difference between Shia and Sunni traditions? So that is there uh, Sufism more likely to arise in Shia than Sunni areas? Well, I think that's a very valuable question. Can you give us the shortest version of that? The short version. I don't mean the shortest, I mean the, the clearest shortest. The short, clear version, hopefully, inshallah, um, is that there are Shia Sufi orders and there are Sunni Sufi orders. Um, and uh, the, so there are, there are, there, it's part of both. I would say that. Um, not sort of Gnostic understanding is more common in the Shia um, path than in the Sunni. Um, it's more embedded in it, but there's it's a it's a more mystical tradition. But that most of the Sufi orders we know in the West are Sunni. Okay, so let me ask one more question about Shia and Sunni. That's not super clear. Okay, no. sorry. All right. Well, that's okay. I know what it is, but well, my question is, and and this is sort of background, this is changing the subject a little, but I think it's important for all of us, if my, my lack of understanding is similar to other people's, um, which is, uh, besides identifying as Shia or Sunni, as an, your lineage, are there significant differences in approach or practice between those two streams? Yeah. Uh, 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 no, I actually want to get the broader picture first. Uh, uh, if you are identified as a as a Shia Muslim or as Sunni Muslim, does that mean you practice differently? There are some some differences. There's differences in the prayer. There's differences okay. in the um, emphasis. Um, there's uh, there's certainly di- there's certainly very different different in philosophy. In philosophy, oh really? Not just in who they trace their lineage to. Yeah. 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 And ah. Also, and like, to, for example, yeah. the Sunni don't eat kosher, and uh, I mean, the halal. They eat halal. <laughs> they eat halal, but according to us, 
according to the oh, so Shias will not, will, uh, the religious ones will not eat shrimp and uh, uh, seafood, for example, like us, and Sunnis will eat it. So there are differences like in diet as well. So I want to pursue this just a little for my benefit. Uh, uh, so what, could you articulate some of the key differences in philosophy between Sunni Islam and Shia Islam? Can you do it? Well, I think um, Rabia covered some, one of the big differences um, in the first class, and that is that um, in order to be a religious leader in the Shia, you need to be a relative of the Prophet. Um, mm-hmm. Say it. Uh, yes. You, and they, they are they're very much, um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a very imp- something very important in the Shia. Oh, and what's um, that title called when you're a religious leader? Say it. Oh, when you're a religious leader? Yeah. Well, even that has different terms for okay. Sunni and Shia, okay. but yeah, they, um, you know, uh, the, what is it called now? Ayatollah, the Ayatollahs. Yeah. Oh. In Iran, you hear about Ayatollah Khomeini. Or they have something. a bad reputation around here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, the other big difference, I would say, between Sunni and Shia uh, is that the Shia are really waiting for the imam of the time, the Mahdi, to come back. Uh, oh, so the Sunni have a messianic expectation. The Shia, the Shia. The, the, the Shia do. Yes, the, in fact, uh, I think, um, uh, Ahmed, uh, what was his name? The last guy who, who Ahmed oh, Ajad or whatever, the last Ahmed president. Ahmadinejad? Yeah, that's it. Ahmadinejad. Never will be able to hate, say his name for some reason. <laughs> he was even building, I think, a special you know, shrine to the Mehdi in Iran. Um, the current president is not really, uh, you know, of so much of that school of thought. But um, I would say the Shia are are um, highly preoccupied with the idea of the of the return of the Mehdi. So the Mehdi is the partly because uh, the Shia trace their lineage of caliphs, their caliphats. So we've heard a lot about the cali caliph and. The caliphate, because of ISIS, uh, proclaiming that they're now the new, the new um, global caliphate of, of Islam or whatever. Um, but the Shia trace their line of caliphs through Ali, uh, you know, and the Prophet and Ali, and then down the line to the last, what they call the last Imam, Imam Mehdi. And it's said that Imam Mehdi is actually waiting in occultation. They call it in the state of <laughs> occultation. Uh, but which, by the way, in the Islamic uh, tradition, Jesus is also in occultation. He was not actually crucified. So just FYI. <laughs> According to the Quran, and we'll get there. We're going to talk about that. That it appeared, the Quran says that it appeared that they killed my prophet Jesus, but they did not, in fact, kill him. That he is alive, and he is in occultation. Wow. He's alive in occultation, which would be oh, hidden, hidden away for the moment when it's time to be revealed again. Uh Right. So it's occultation is kind of like this idea of it's um, he's like he's serving a spiritual realm between paradise and this world, and he's sort of waiting. Uh, and the Shia have a extremely intricate um, wow. world of uh, ideas about um, what's going to happen with the end times. This is very similar to the um, Christians, evangelical Christians, uh, 
I don't know any kind of Christian. I'm not sure, to be honest. I don't know right. that much about it. But I know because I have family members that are evangelical, so I know through their lens um, that uh, the idea of the end times and the return of Jesus, I think, uh, it's sort of similar, in fact, to the Islamic understanding that the Shia put forth. So that's very interesting, I think. Well, and the Sunni? The Sunni do, in, do believe in the Mehdi, not all of them. Uh, they're not as focused on it. The Shia really, because you have to understand that the Shia have by and large been disenfranchised throughout the Muslim world. They're the minority. Um, and, you know, in, you know, as we know, um, they're persecuted. Every year uh, at the Hajj and Mecca, you know, hundreds of Shia are killed. Uh, Sunnis, you know, kill them. Uh, for whatever reason. Um, so, and you can tell as a Shia because according to their dress and where they're from, if they're from Iran or whatever, so often they're targeted. Wow. So, yeah, so it's, 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 it's very much um, also a vision of redemption for the Shia because they're waiting for this return of the Mahdi who's going to then right this whole wrong that's happened in Islamic history and it's very complex, and, and, and in many ways, it's very sad, because I've, I've also witnessed in my time, I, I, at some point I was doing um, some work uh, a few years ago trying to bring Sunni and Shia leaders together and try to create some kind of alliance, um, and it actually, it doesn't really work. They really are arch enemies, and because of all the problems in the world, and the proxy war that's going on right now between Iran and Saudi Arabia, it's things have gotten extremely polarized. And this is even a few years ago, before ISIS came on the scene, it was extremely difficult to get people in a room and talking together and trying to agree about it, just about anything. So we finally gave up um, on trying to make that work. And that's in America, New York City. Oh, that was in the States? Yeah. Wow. Oh, wow. It's very helpful for me to learn about this yeah. from you. Thank you. Yeah. One of the real things I find really interesting, and this is not really very well known, but a lot of the um, academics in this country have been trained in Iran. A lot of the really big names in Sufism um, and are all part of this sort of, I, I was just told this by one of my professors, are all part of this, um, of an Iranian Sufi order that's very much academic. I don't know the name of it. I don't know that you know. The Marimia? Yeah. 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 Um, but many of the very shining um, lights in Sufi scholarship, Chit William Chittick, who has written many uh, amazing books on um, Ibn al-Arabi and on um, uh, Mevlana Rumi, uh, uh, just many of those folks, and um, uh, one one uh, very uh, older scholar, Nasser. Um, Sayyid Hussein Nasser. Yeah, Sayyid Hussein Nasser. Um, all are part of this Shia lineage and, were, and got their initial training. The very early Sufis in this, academics in this country, got their training in Tehran. They did, but it was during the time of the Shah. Right. It was pre, right. pre the revolution. Pre, yeah. pre revolution. Yeah. Oh wow, that's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Pre yeah. pre nineteen seventy nine revolution, there was a very the Shah was very supportive of uh, of Sufism, unlike today in Iran. They it's illegal. I'm not surprised. Uh, yeah. Mary, you wanted to ask something. Well, I'd like to go a little bit back to this. Cycle the ascent. I was going there too. What did you want to say? Because I want to say something about that too. Well, 
uh, are wrestling with that process. Is there any, when you were <coughs> studying all this, is there any forum for wrestling with it, or is it just something you, you just accept? The, the Jewish wrestling yes. is a beautiful image that's, that, that may be particularly Jewish, where we, we enter into vigorous discourse and debate, and we, we, we play with the ideas, and we turn, we, you know, that, that, that kind of active study. From what I was reading, that is part of uh, Islamic uh, tradition, too, uh, really yeah. vigorous intellectual oh, yeah. discourse. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, for sure. There's a lot of, there's a lot of um, intellectual debate uh, that, that, that happens between, you know, probably more in the scholarly communities. Um, I personally am not so much in that world. Uh, I do, I do, uh, I am, uh, occasionally I take part in the Ibn Arabi Society uh, conferences that happen in different places in New York and, and the West Coast and um, those scholars, which are some of the scholars that you mentioned, William Chittick and some of the Sayyid Hussein Nasser's uh, disciples, uh, not disciples, but, um, you know, students, students thank you. Um, they really do that well. Like, if you ever are interested to engage in, in some of the Islamic philosophy without the practice piece and without the Sufi, you know, uh, accoutrements. They're really like scholars, and you can go to one of their conferences as any as a member of any religion and get so much out of it because they're first of all they're amazing minds, intellects, and they're able to really pick apart all these complex philosophical ideas and debate them, and it's an amazing experience um, to really. So there is a lot. There is a lot of that happening. Um, in my Sufi order, in my experience, it's. I'm more on the bhakti side, the devotional side of, um, so I really like gravitate towards these places like Khwaja Sabs in Ajmer Sharif um, and also my order in, in Istanbul where it's really about diving into the, to the practice and it's not so much mental um, and it's about really awakening the fire of the heart and that is really what will take you to these and, and you will find those options in the Jewish world as well based on your temperament and your spiritual kind of temperament. But what I want to say is that this idea of passionate inquiry in Judaism is considered a form of worship. And that's one of the things that Judaism, as, as the, you know, identified as the people of the book, that our passionate inquiry is considered a religious activity. And that's, you'll find that in other traditions, but it's particularly highlighted in Judaism. Also, I mentioned Rabbi Arthur Waskow before. Um, he's uh, one of these sort of, uh, what do you call it, uh, idea entrepreneurs. I don't know what the right way. He just seeds these brilliant ideas far beyond people who actually know who started it. So he was the one who resuscitated the understanding of the name of Israel, Yisrael, because Jacob wrestles with an angel and God gives him the name Yisrael, you wrestled with God. And so Arthur brilliantly took that and said, that's what our name means, God wrestlers. <laughs> so we've really used that as a beautiful way in an age of doubt to make it okay to be engaged in that inquiry where we're doubting. And uh, so a lot of our wrestling here 
and our reclaiming of this word Israel as God wrestler really comes just from 30, 40 years ago with uh, Reb Arthur. So it's a very, it's, it's beautiful to watch how traditions find beautiful things that speak to the moment in them. Uh, we're almost out of time. I just want to say, but there's, you know, the historical, the rabbis with all around the, you know, talking about what does a piece of Torah mean. Right, I mean, that's what I mean. That's why I said passionate inquiry. It's not new, but the idea of wrestling is a very contemporary metaphor. That's all I meant. It's not. So there's just two minutes left. And what I want to share is, uh, so I'll do this really succinctly. This idea of starting with the doing, uh, the first level is the sharia, the doing. This is how you live a just and meaning uh, life. And then through that activity, through the na'aseh, through the doing, one raises, hopefully, to a level of Marifa, Marifa eventually. So you go through these levels of where uh, this is a long. I'll, I'll talk about this next time because when I study, as I study Jewish <coughs> mysticism, history of Jewish mysticism in my rabbinic training and afterwards, one of the challenges that Jewish mystics always had, along with mystics uh, <coughs> in the Golden Age of Spain, especially and in North Africa, was that well, if you reach the level of truth where the ego's gone and everything's God, then why keep doing what you were doing? Hmm. Right? What's the reason? And we'll talk a little about Maimonides and what he wrote called The Guide for the Perplexed, which was addressed to these very cosmopolitan, learned Jews of his time who were saying, well, why should I keep doing the Jewish thing? Right? So for the Jewish mystics, the path of reaching that level of all is God, you then bring that back to your everyday activity. I'm saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I'm saying that that is, a, that, that is, otherwise you wind up formless, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And uh, these traditions are rooted in their communal practices. So then, is it possible, and this is a question we can end on, and uh, I think it is possible, obviously, but it changes, to, to start from the beginning as a child with, this is the way we do things, because you're a Jew, right? to go through adolescence and adulthood and come to the place, if you're on a spiritual path, where you realize, wait, all is one. This is magnificent. And then say, and I'm going to choose to invest that consciousness back into my, day, my Jewish actions. Right? And so is it possible then, as a quote-unquote semi-enlightened being, to then reinvest in your own path, but do it in a way that doesn't feel exclusive. So you're doing it out of love instead of out of a sense of um, uh, external imposition. And that's what I'm after as a Jew. The reason I do Jewish, I love being Jewish. Right? I don't have an explanation. Right? I'm not not doing. Having, Having been blessed with some of these higher experiences that have opened my consciousness, I'm not doing it because I'm sure this is the right way and yours is the wrong way. Because I'm sure it isn't. So, however, I love being Jewish. It speaks to my soul. And so, I choose it again. And that level of awareness is what I'm hoping we, more and more people, can come to so they can choose what they do 
without having to make it exclusive in terms of its relationship to truth. Uh, so let's leave it there. Um, it's, yeah, we, we, a chant? We would love to end with a chant. Can you stay? If, do you have one more minute? Because I hate to have the energy start to evaporate. It looks like people need to go. Need to go? Okay. I'm so, we'll save it for next time with apologies. I'll mind the time more carefully next time. So thank you, everybody. Thank you, teachers.